Hey there, audio community. The Sound Girls podcast would like to thank our sponsors, QSC, for supporting our program. And you may think pro audio when you think about QSC, but they're also about making the world a better place. They're committed to things like integrity and building trust and keeping promises. They promote thinking long-term, even when it's more work, and they value inclusion. They promote doing the right thing just because it's the right thing to do. So QSC is about a lot more than just audio, and we're very grateful for their support. So check out everything that they're about at QSC.com. Hi there, listeners. Welcome to the Sound Girls podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Wilson, and today... We've got three all-star RF experts here to discuss wireless and the issues around our shrinking spectrum. We talked about why it's harder than ever to get clean RF and some of the solutions and new ways to think about show site RF management. We also talked about resources and common mistakes and misconceptions about antennas and much more. So I hope you enjoy and thanks for listening. So hello, everyone. We're, I'm so glad to have all three of you here today and that we were able to make everyone's schedule work to bring this all together to talk about RF. First, I'd like to introduce Brian Maddox, who has been an audio engineer for over 30 years and has worked with everybody from U.S. presidents to Patti LaBelle to the Pope. And he specializes in corporate events, and he's an active freelancer working as an A1, an RF coordinator, and a comms tech. So hi, Brian. Thanks for coming on. I am very excited to be here. Thanks a bunch. Our second panelist is Carl Winkler, who is also a 30-year veteran in professional audio. He is currently vice president of sales and marketing for Electrosonics, a leading wireless microphone manufacturer. He also is a regular columnist for Live Sound Magazine and is an instructor for a two-day seminar called Making Wireless Work. Carl, we're super grateful to have you on today. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. And our third RF rock star is Greg Simon, who has a music production and engineering degree from Berklee College of Music. He currently works on Sennheiser's technical applications engineering team, and he heads training for the Americas region. He's also been designing wireless systems for over 15 years. Welcome. Greg. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So I know that our listeners are really interested in hearing all that you guys know. So first, I'd just like to kind of lay the groundwork about about what the issues are and what the current kind of RF landscape is. So Brian, could you give us a short overview of kind of why we're here and what we're, why we're talking about all this? Yeah, so I, um, I, I shared a thing on, on the socials just, um, uh, I don't know, a, a week or two ago, uh, specifically about this issue, and um, I, it sort of lit a fire in, in, I think, a bunch of people, because this is really a thing that we're dealing with, and that is the rapidly shrinking RF space that we as production professionals, especially live um, uh, audio people, are are dealing with on the regular. So... When I first started uh, 30 years ago, there was tons of RF space. And we basically just walked in with wireless microphones and we turned them on. And 95% of the time, it just worked because we were operating in the same space as television channels. And there was a lot of open space. It just wasn't that full. And because they had been licensed for television, there was nothing else in that space. So as long as we operated in relatively low power, which obviously microphones are 
much, much smaller power than uh, a television station transmitter. We were fine and we just sort of operated in the cracks. But obviously technology uh, moved forward. And at some point, the specifically the cell phone company um, industry, as well as some other industries, I, we're like, we need some of that bandwidth because we've run out of space in the amount of space that you've given us. And the FCC saw an opportunity to make some money by auctioning off the licenses for the for that space. Unfortunately, all of the TV transmitters stayed online. They just got crammed into a smaller and smaller and smaller space. The other thing that happened at a kind of in parallel to this is that the television transmitters went from an analog based system where there were cracks in between those carriers that you could still stuff some wireless microphones to a digital signal that was pretty much wall to wall filling the entire spectrum of space that they were allocated hogging the whole thing pretty much hogging the whole thing when you look at this on a spectrum analyzer it's pretty much just a it's it's like a a, a mesa or a you know a cliff straight up and then everything is is all the TV transmitter and then a cliff straight down on the other side. And there's no space in, in between to do anything. And we're in kind of a really difficult situation. There's almost, I don't want to say almost no, but there's very, well, that's true. Almost no spectrum left, depending on what city that you're in to operate in and very few options of ways to, to deal with that. And so until very recently, there was a tiny glimmer of hope that we might be able to get one TV channel per city that would actually be left open. It was a tiny glimmer. Most people didn't think it was going to happen, but it was a tiny glimmer and uh, they dashed our hopes. And so that's not going to happen. Okay. So Greg, what is Sennheiser doing about this and how are you guys working with it? So I, I will say, um, my opinion differs a little bit from Brian's, though he's definitely spot on in everything he said. Um, except I don't know if I agree that the sky has completely fallen at this point, right? In most places, there is still some spectrum available. The difference here, really, what we see is, you know, years ago, you could kind of do whatever you wanted, wherever you wanted, and you really didn't need to know what you were doing, and it worked, and it was fine. And now those days are over. Right, So you can't just buy a system in any spectrum and get as many channels as you feel like and wherever you go, that's not really reality anymore, right? So now what you need to do is you need to be able to, you know, know what is available where you're going, know what your systems are capable of. Um, and also what Sennheiser is really doing is we've really started to kind of go back to the drawing board and try to solve some of the issues that we had in the past that really weren't problems before because we had tons of spectrum, but now we're seeing them more as problems. Things like you know, the systems interacting with each other and creating intermodulation, and you had to avoid this intermodulation, thus frequency coordination and, you know, spacing and all this stuff. And we're really trying to solve some of those problems so we can pack a lot more channels into, um, you know, the same amount of space, right? So we have new systems that are on the market and ones that are coming out in the future where they're completely intermodulation free. You can pack channels right next to each other um, and get a lot more spectrum. And it's not gonna be reserved for only the most expensive systems, only the four or $5,000 per channel for the giant live show. Um, we're really trying to bring that technology down into a price point that can be afforded by a lot more people. And now you can get 
you know, more channels, if you can get 10 or even 20 channels packed into a single six megahertz, if you go to a city and only have one station open, you can still get 10 or 20 channels, right? Before, that really wasn't reality. So um, this is really what Sennheiser has been working on. We Again, we have systems that are already out and we have new ones that are coming that really focus on being intermod free, more spectrally efficient, um, and really trying to do that all with maintaining the highest level of sound quality. Carl, could you shed some light too? I mean, I know that uh, Electrosonics has a lot going on. Um, could you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, happy to. Um, I will disagree slightly with both of my predecessors here uh, in the fact that I think some skill and knowledge about the technology and the application of wireless mics was always required to some extent. It was easier. Um, there was way more spectrum available. We've lost a ton of it. No doubt it's gotten a lot more challenging. But anyone doing sophisticated systems for you know musical theater, a large sporting event, anything like that needed to know a lot and use really the best technology. That's always been the case. The challenge now is that the demands for wireless continue to rise. And that was part of, I think, what Brian was uh, talking about in his, his post a couple weeks ago. Uh, and the discussions that came out of that were really interesting. But you know, the demands keep going up. People want this beautiful freedom of movement on the stage and, and, and open sight lines and everything. And, you know, the technology lets that happen. The problem is that if you just keep adding wireless channels, you, you know, at some point you run out. And so, you know, some, like some other companies, including Sennheiser, uh, Electrosonics has worked hard to develop a technology to make that possible uh, with wide tuning ranges, uh, you know, spectral efficiency, high density modes and things like that, allowing for, you know, we got up to 40 channels in a six meg band, you know? Um, and so all those tools make it um, possible to do what we're trying to do, you know, with some caveats. And I'm sure Brian will lead the way into that. But the other thing that Electrosonics has tried to do, of course, is we join in the lobbying efforts along with our colleagues at Sennheiser and Shure and others to try to educate the FCC and other interested parties in you know, what kind of impact this would make. And of course, to some extent, it's a losing battle, but I think we did get some good um, knowledge across the table and uh, were able to get some things out of that. So it could have been worse, believe it or not. Do you think that they are going to give us our own band of any kind or any kind of, uh, no. you know, anything? Not really. I mean, and this is something that, that I often say is remember that every piece of spectrum that you are thinking about using is shared with someone. Okay, and you may need a license for that, or you may not, but that's important that, uh, that our users know about these things. And, you know, that's the other thing that, that all the companies, including Electrosonics, have done is, is moved certain types of products out of the core UHF band, into v, back into VHF, I say back because we used to use it, up into the 941 band, which is a license-only band, and, and other bands like that. And the idea there is we want to try to get uh, as many things out of that core UHF band as possible, any kind of communication systems, uh, foldback, IFB, uh, you know, and that way preserving that high performance band uh, in the TV band just for the money channels, if you will. And, you know, education has been super important. You know, we did a series of videos called Wireless Side Chats where we take you from the basics of what we're dealing with all the way up through some best practices and RF gain staging. What are some of your um, best practices and what, what do you cover specifically in there? Um, yeah, there was a, it came out of a panel a few years ago, but one of my favorite ones is the seven things, the seven most common problems with wireless mics and what you can do to solve them. And this was distilled down from years of doing these panels and it kind of came down to, you know, frequency coordination, 
uh, which Greg mentioned and is becoming less of an issue with these, you know, intermod free types of systems. Um, it talks about RF gain staging. It talks about band planning, which is like what I mentioned, trying to get your non-core or money channels out of the UHF band and keeping them separate. Keep your IEM channels separate from your uh, wireless mic channels and things like that, as well as, you know, antenna placement, um, you know, transmitter placement, antenna orientation, you know, all these things are all related and they're easy to do wrong. In fact, they're done wrong all day long, everywhere we, we go. I mean, I'm a, I'm a musician, I play weddings and every other wedding I go to, there's wireless mic problems, you know, and I just try to keep my trap shut because I'm there to play music, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I, I will also add that like Carl's really spot on, like diversification of what you're doing, trying to spread things out, using other bands, other ranges, uh, depending on what the application is, is always going to be a benefit, right? The number one question we get is, is the FCC going to sell more of the spectrum? And the answer is, we have no idea what they're going to do. They keep telling us that they understand the importance of wireless microphones. They're using wireless microphones constantly, but also they see these giant dollar signs flashing in their face, and it's really difficult for them not to grab that money, right? And so the good news that we've seen is, you know, some of the 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 companies that are really shelling out this money, which is the big telecom companies that Brian was talking about before, they are starting to become more and more interested in spectrum that's higher and higher because they can do more and more data faster and faster. Um, and so, you know, it's starting to to take that conversation a little bit away from what we're doing, which we at least have our fingers crossed. Um, but, you know, we have no idea what they're planning is the problem. Um, and so we just keep lobbying them. I know Electro and Shure and, and Sennheiser, we have all together been lobbying them saying this. Um, you know, unfortunately, to answer your question, um, we are definitely not getting that channel. They've already made that decision that they are not doing that. Um, but in that same statement, they did said that they are committed to helping uh, us as an industry because they see the importance of that. We'll see what happens there. But um, we're definitely doing everything we can as a team, even though we're all competitors, we're really banding together because it's not Anyone, if, if, if you know, every one of us loses if we lose, right? So we really have to work together. And we do work together. I mean, at, at any given show, all these brands are, are present, uh, whether it's with the camera crew outside and the behind the scenes stuff, the, the comms, the IFPs, the wireless mics, you know, in ears and so on. Uh, and so it, it's good that we interact and, and we share panels together and we, we're industry friends, frankly. I mean, I used to work at Sennheiser, I still know people there. Um, there's people that used to work at Sennheiser, you know, here and at Shure, and you know, it's it's a small community when it comes right down to it. I mean, professional audio as a whole is a small community, and you know, there's even jokes like, you know, why did so and so leave the industry? Well, he decided he wanted to make some money for a change. You know, I mean, it, 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 this is a pretty small neighborhood, and and it's uh, it's always worthwhile to work together to solve these problems, even though we're competitors, as has been mentioned. It sure is. And is there anything that we as industry professionals can do to help the FCC um, see our industry? Well, we do send out, um, you know, when, when we are trying to petition the FCC, and when I say we, I mean all of us, um, you know, we do send out to engineers and to other people saying, hey, you know, you know as, ma as many stories as you can give us so we can send them. Um, I know that we definitely did that for this last petitioning that we did. Um, and again, when I say we, I mean all of us as an industry, Electro, Shore, uh, Sennheiser, together, uh, really focusing towards this. Um, and 
and also, you know, looking at, you know, new technologies in the future. There are um, things that we're asking the FCC that we can maybe change the way, you know, wireless microphones are being used for future technologies. Um, and so, you know, from all angles and all the companies are really from all angles trying to solve problems for all of the end users as best as we can. And we have to remember, you know, who do we know? Uh, we might know people at the recording academy. We might know people who are, um, you know, politicians. I have an uncle who's a congressman. Uh, you know, and those people can help guide us. Like they've fought these battles too. I mean, they've worked with the FCC. They might know, you know, the best way to approach or who to approach. Or, you know, there's always a certain procedure. Th these are government entities. The FCC is a very strict government entity, so you can't just write them a letter. You know, it, it has to be a very official kind of approach. Um, so. Essentially, everyone should be doing everything they can uh, with everyone they know to raise awareness. Social media helps. I remember there was, uh, you know, a petition kind of, I, maybe it was the one that, that uh, Greg was talking about, you know, that we helped to share to get the word out. Like, you know, make your voice heard, get in there. Here's where you go and, and file your comments and so on. So there's a lot that people can do. Um, but I was just going to make the comment before that uh, new money is always more enticing than old money. <laughs> you know, so the industry, you know, the entertainment industry is worth billions, and and it's our, it's one of our, you know, we have a positive uh, export to the rest of the world, which isn't true for that many things. Um, but because it's sort of established, you know, it's not as enticing when when the when the uh, cell phone companies and and you know Google or whatever come along and say, hey, we have this new economic thing that's going to make all this money. They forget, oh well, but it's going to cost this other industry a whole bunch of money. <laughs> Yeah, so that that tends to balance out, and it's something to keep in mind. Always think of it in, a, in an economic uh, formula or or equation, uh, because that's what they understand best. Sure, we're going to make money there, but you're going to take money away here. If we're talking about the difference between, um, let's say, content creation, which the U.S. is extremely good at, the best in the world, uh, that's one side of the equation. The other side of the equation is constant content distribution. So. That's what the cell phone companies and the data companies are thinking about. How do we get this content out into the world? We're concerned about making it and making it with quality. So that equation has to balance too. And talking to them in those those um, those kind of with that kind of language tends to help them understand it. Yeah, and I'll I'll also add there that you know we are obviously all working uh, to try to prevent some of this stuff from happening, um, but also we're also in the situation that we're in. Right, like this is what we have to deal with as engineers. You know, Brian, you, this, you deal with this every day, um, and so you know, saying, "Well, hopefully the FCC won't do this, or we should tell them to do that," doesn't really solve the problem of the show that has to go on tonight. So, best thing I can say for everybody listening is try to educate yourself on RF as much as possible. You know, I know all of the companies, Sennheiser. I do a lot of webinars. I know Carl does a lot of webinars as well, where we can educate. And the more knowledge you have about what is happening, the more you'll be able to work around an issue that you might find in that particular location. I mean, I've we've done tons of these things, and you know, very rarely, with as many tips and tricks as we can come up with, do we say, "Ah, can't do the show, sorry." Right? We always find a way, <laughs> yeah, to make it work. Um, but you know, the more knowledge you have, the more likely you're going to be able to do that. Greg gave me a perfect jumping-off point, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna take it um, because this has been sort of my my thought process more recently in all of this, which is, I think that there's a tension with, especially us that do live events, to make the show happen no matter what. We just do whatever it takes, 
And, you know, our, our uh, creative client, our end client, whomever it may be, is from the top down saying, I want to have a clean stage. I want to have this. I want to have that. I want, you know, we're going to have uh, a 50 person choir come out and then we're going to have an orchestra stroll across the stage. And then we're going to have, and I don't want to see any wires and I want, you know, and I, I want all these things. And oh, by the way, I, we, we want to do it in New York City uh, on top of a building. Um, I think the the thing that we don't do well enough is gently but persuasively pushing back sometimes on asks that really might not work. You know, I'm not going to go so far as to say aren't possible, although sometimes the asks are straight not possible. But we, you know, what we're really talking about is mitigating risk for your show. You come to me and you want to have, you know, 87 channels of wireless um, a block and a half from the White House. Ask me how I know. Um, <laughs> how did that go? It was a heavy lift. I mean, basically, it took sure. it took a lot of throwing a lot of different, you know, a lot of different things at the at the problem to make it work, and also creating a hierarchy of these are the channels that absolutely positively have to work. Do we absolutely need channel fifty two? There are shows where they are throwing pretty much unlimited money at us, but asking nearly impossible things. And sometimes you have to say, this isn't a money problem. This is a physics problem. And we just, we, we need to negotiate that and say, you know, yes, I can have four of the best RF coordinators on the planet. And yes, I can, you know, do every but I can't guarantee that I'm going to get 250 channels of RF to work, you know, in, in downtown Manhattan. I just, I can't guarantee that anymore. I just did a show in New York city where it wasn't a huge channel count, but it was in a really bad part of the city as far as um, RF goes. And my RF coordinator spent like three days just getting the 27 channels to work. And that's all he did. Like he didn't do anything, anything else. It was try this combination, try that, work this thing, you know, shave this off, do whatever. And having the conversations of we, you're going to need a, a dedicated person. You may need to rent the latest possible equipment because the, you know, what we might've been able to get away with before we just can't get away with anymore. You know, like, like real, we can have really high quality equipment, but it's five years old technology or it's eight year old technology. And it, I just can't get the channel count. Really what I feel at this point is, is learning the basics, the physics of RF really can make or break that. Like, and then knowing once you understand how it's working and again, RF is RF, right? Uh, it, there is no, it doesn't matter whether it's a Sennheiser microphone sending me signal or if it's a Shure microphone or Electrosonics microphone, it's still, you know, radio frequencies going over the air. Um, and there's there's very little difference that's happening there, right? And so understanding the physics of what's happening not only allows you to really be able to, to you know, make all those best practices and make sure you're doing everything at best possible. But more importantly, when you do get into a situation that's tough, knowing which of those rules are okay to break and why in order to do that, right? So 
I'll give an example. It's always best practice to not put your wireless microphone on top of a television station, right? Well, what if you get to a scenario where there are no television stations that are empty, right? Well, how do we understand when we can put it on top of it and what tricks we can do in order to kind of make it work and make sure your carrier to noise ratio is still okay and and these kind of things, right? So there's a lot of stuff that you can do, but you you know, you have to understand what it is that you're trying to do in order to make that work. So I, I do want to make sure that everybody is is understanding that you can still use lots of wireless microphones. There, where you know everybody's working on great technology, and and the shows will go on, and it's something that you can get into, but you do need to learn about it. Yeah, I think one of the things that you touched on that I'm just going to to reiterate in a slightly different way is there's a lot of us that have been doing audio for a long time, and we learned how to make wireless mics work, kind of in the field by trying stuff. And, and there's, there's a lot of myths that we learned along the way. There are now so many educational resources and tools from the major manufacturers um, in particular. You know, they all have fantastic training um, uh, available. No matter where you are in your career, we all owe it to ourselves to take a step back and start and go, what is the physics of what is actually happening? Why did that trick that I was taught 20 years ago work? Not just it works, but why does it work? And as Greg said, and then when do I deploy that? When do I, when, when do I make the compromises? And ultimately, that's learning the basics of, what, of the way that RF works in a space, the way that it interacts with surfaces, the way that it interacts with itself, the, you know, all of these really basic physics things if I have any message of what's changed, it's just the, the, the window of we do something wrong and we get away with it is much, much, much narrower than it used to be. And, and we just have to understand that we need to know why we're doing what we're doing. And, you know, those best practices, um, the, the thing that Carl mentioned, um, I've reviewed that it's fantastic. There's a huge amount of of, of information in those seven things um, that are basic core principles and core ideas and uh, just refreshing ourselves. Or if we're newer to the industry, starting from that core and going, how does this physically work? What are the actual physics behind this? And then actually getting things to work in challenging environments becomes so much easier because you understand what, what's at play. Yeah, I mean, you know, both both of these guys have, are definitely speaking the gospel on the subject. And one way that I like to characterize this is that, you know, in any given wireless system, there's a lot of things that can go wrong, and they often do. But if you have most of the steps in your system optimized well based on physics and, you know, best practices and all this knowledge that's been gathered all these decades of using these systems, if you've got your system pretty well optimized— a small error isn't going to bring you down, you know, and you can also find ways to bend the rules based on a rock solid system. You can get away with a lot more. But if your system is teetering on the edge at every single stage, the smallest thing can bring it down. And that's exactly what Brian's talking about. I mean, both of these guys, they're, they're, they're saying this. I'm just saying it in a different way. Um, but th those basics are indispensable and, and ev ever more important. That's why I think we've spent so much time and I, I know the other manufacturers have as well. But 
for this very reason, to educate everyone on the basics so that they can get those things right and then begin to add layer upon layer of other tips and tricks that you might pick up on the way. But another thought came to me is, you know, we're talking about Brian doing these very large shows. And, you know, for many years at some of the trade shows, like the uh, AES convention, for instance, they'd have a wireless panel. And uh, James Stafu, who I love dearly, and uh, some other very sharp folks would do these panels, but they would talk about things like the Super Bowl, you know, and th that's just the the 0.1% of, of what happens out there. And so for a while I was pushing, hey, let, let's bring this down to earth, you know, let, let's... Uh, Let's have people raise their hands. How many people use systems of 12 channels? A lot of people raise their hand. How about 24 less people? How about, you know, 48, two people? Okay, so we know we want to focus on the 12 to 24 channel type wireless users because those are the vast majority. We don't need to be talking about 4,000 carriers, you know, <laughs> to, to most of the people that are going to be there. You know, I mean, there's times when we do have to deal with that and we have to know how. And mainly the, the smartest thing to do there is to hire the experts that know how to do that. Um, you know, but for the folks working in churches and doing the the, the small tours and, you know, the, the doing a TV show or whatever it is, and they're using 12 or 18 channels, like these basics are absolutely critical. And yet they can count on uh, rock solid performance. And they do that day in and day out. And I will also say all of these newer systems are, are really good. I mean, Carl even said it before. How many times have you gone to one of your gigs and you see somebody doing something that's like, oh, my God, what are you doing? That's like exactly the wrong way to do it. And yet it still is OK, right? Yes, we could optimize it and make it more rock solid, but it's not if you do it wrong, it's not going to work. No, clearly it's working. And, you know, it doesn't really matter what manufacturer you're talking about. They're all pretty good these days. They are, and even moderately priced systems, if used moderately well, will work just fine. Exactly. You know, it's when things start getting, you know, into the bigger 12 channels, let's say. That's when things start getting a little more complicated, and it's going to really matter what you do with your frequency choices and your band planning and your RF gain. And speaking of RF gain, that's one thing that, um, you know, our team, our mantra is filter and attenuate. You know, why is that? Because in the last 10 years, we've lost so much spectrum, but also that the noise floor is so much higher. So, you know, what kind of used to be the thing, you know, let's, let's turn it up to 100 milliwatts and punch through. It's like the problem is there's not enough spectrum and there's too much noise. So really lower your power, but filter and attenuate your antenna system appropriately. And that's going to give you better results. It's amazing how well that works but it's tough to get it out there. So many times you hear or come across people amplifying their, their receiver antennas and, you know, with short cable runs and, you know, wondering why it doesn't work. Well, and it's, 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 it's counterintuitive, Carl. And that's, and that's, and I, you know, I, as somebody who came up and just, as I was, you know, fumbling around trying to figure out what I was doing, you know, I, I worked at a church um, as the, the tech director and, and music director for, um, five, five years, about 15 years ago. And, um, was really fumbling around with my RF systems, trying to get them to work. And this is after I've had 10 years, 15 years of experience in professional audio engineering. And, uh, I admit, like, I was like, Oh, I'm having problems. I need more power because intuitively that makes sense, you know? And, and yeah, I, it has been a big eye opener for me in the last five years of, um, you need the opposite of that. You need because every last bit of, of amplification that you're doing is just amplifying all the junk that's that's in the like it's just making things worse. The you know block and a half away from DC example that I used was completely solved 
by very low power, concentrated only on the stage. We had, um, I, I forget the exact number, but somewhere in the range of the 35 in-ear mixes. And 15 feet from the stage, they disappeared. But nobody left the stage. So it was enough. It was tiny, tiny, you know, with really good, you know, filtering and really good, you know, we stayed away from trying to fight all of that stuff and just, you know, concentrate on it needs to work in this very small space. Let's get coverage for just this very small space. Let's make sure that we're running power just enough for this very small space. And we were able to to make this large channel count work. And the, the principles still apply, as, as Carl said, you know, in a smaller um, theater environment or a smaller church environment or any of these things, you know, knowing the, the basic principles is so key uh, because that's how your stuff will work week after week after week after week. The basic principles are universal and kind of once you get to know them, when you get these kind of anomalous results of it worked fine last week and for some reason it's not working this week. You know, when I put the lavalier belt pack on this person, it worked fine. When I put it on this person, it didn't work fine. The, 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 the Pope's outfit, I'm sorry, I'm not Catholic, so I don't know what it's called, um, is, a, is a really, really good RF attenuator. I'll just, I'll just say it's, it's extremely good at, at making my, my RF go away. So yeah. yeah. The Dalai Lama. I make, I mic the Dalai Lama and I mean, stuff just takes a huge duck every time I put a belt back on him. It's bizarre. And then it comes back. <laughs> <laughs> Years ago, I did a, a, a thing that was a, you know, they did rehearsals and they just were all wore street clothes and everything was great. And then they showed up for the, for the actual event. It was a theatrical thing. Then they showed up in costume and I just slapped all the mics on and they, they threw on these big Victorian level costumes and half the microphones disappeared. And I was like, what? You know, I was like 30 years old. I had been in the industry for maybe five, six years. And I was just. They didn't, they didn't tell you they were going to have actual chain mail. I will be wearing a Faraday cage in this, in the performance. Right. I was actually like, yeah, it's like, and, and that's actually a bit of an RF attenuator. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what we always recommend. You know, you don't know how much power you're going to need, right? But we always recommend you use the least amount of power that gets you all of the range that you need, right? Because the more power you put in the environment, the more noisy it is. And as Brian was saying earlier, like in other industries, you know, if I want my car to go faster, I spend more money, I get more horsepower, it goes faster. This is very obvious, right? But with RF, the more energy you're putting into the space, the more noise you have, the more problems you have. Um, it same goes for boosters. I mean, honestly, most of the time we go into a situation and somebody says, hey, we're having an issue. And I said, do you have a booster? And they say, yes. And eight out of 10 times we say, just remove it and you'll fix your problem, right? Um, because that's just adding a ton of noise. And it, it, you know, initially you're like, well, I have the money, so I'm gonna buy a booster and it's gonna be better. But in reality, all it's doing is destroying the front end of your receiver with noise, and then it makes it far worse. So it's it's really about knowing. If you know that you need a booster for a specific reason because you have a certain amount of cable loss, it can be an advantage. But in many scenarios, it's actually a disadvantage, but it's not so intuitive, right? So things like that, learning tricks like that, learning you know about the basics of the physics really can get you to a point where you understand, oh, hey... I need a booster in this situation, or more likely, I don't need one, and I have one, which is why my system isn't working. And when when is a booster, when do you suggest people do use boosters? 
So boosters are designed really for one thing, and that's to overcome massive amounts of cable loss, right? Um, they will also boost the noise floor. So you got to be very careful. That's why you don't want to just use one whenever you have. And it's a much better solution to get a cable that has lower loss if that is a scenario. But sometimes you say, I got, I need 300 feet of cable and I'm using, you know, this high-end LMR 400 and I still have, you know, 15 dB of loss. Well, now you need a booster and that's going to solve that cable loss problem. Uh, you have no idea how many times we've seen boosters on 25-foot cables, and all they're doing is sending 15 dB of noise into the receiver, which the receiver just sees as right. a blinding light, right? All the time. Yeah. Very common. Yeah. So boosters are your last resort, um, and they're there to solve specific problems of cable loss and nothing else. <laughs> yeah. As, a, as an end user, um, you know, paddle antennas started coming with little, you know, RF boosters on them, you know, years and years and years ago. And I, I just remember looking at it and going, why would I run this on anything other than maximum power? Because, you know, just <laughs> intuitively, it's like, yeah. it's like, you know, it's got a plus 12 or whatever it is. Why would, and it's like, it had plus 12 and a plus six and a zero and a minus six. And I was like, why would I ever want minus six? Why would I want less? I admit many a show, I had everything up on plus 12 and it all worked. And so I just assumed it was better as the environment has gotten more challenging, I've had to educate myself on, oh, right, it's plus 12 of everything. And, and every booster is an active electronic amplifier, which means it introduces distortion and noise implicitly by existing in the line. And the thing we have to remember about that, right, is... You know, in RF, there's like a magic line where like, if you're above it, your system works. And if you're below it, your system doesn't work. And you don't really know where that magic line is, right? So in that scenario, Brian might've been 20 dB above the line of magic line of it's not gonna work. He was adding 12 dB of noise. So now he was eight dB above that line. So it still worked, but in reality, it was actually making the signal much worse but it wasn't worse enough to make it not work. And now that things are more challenging, that might be the difference between a system working and not working. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing I want to add is, is the idea that um, you don't always know how to solve a problem. Uh, and, and maybe where I'm heading with this is that manufacturers, you know, we have a lot of deep institutional knowledge here. Um, we don't always know what the end users are up against but they also don't always know what the technical solutions might be. And where I'm heading with this is, is the famous patent quote, right? Don't tell them how to do it, just tell them what you want done and their ingenuity will amaze you. And by that, I mean, call us up and say, and don't just say, hey, I need three handheld transmitters and a receiver with three channels, or whatever. Tell us what you're trying to do. And we might be able to come up with some interesting solutions. Like maybe we can suggest using a, a stereo transmitter to save on the number of carriers. Uh, maybe we'll, you know, depending on what the application is. Maybe we've got something in a form factor that'll make uh, the, the costuming problem easier or some kind of custom antenna could be uh, done or maybe even something off the shelf could solve these problems. So, you know, let's share in the problem. Tell us what the problem is or what you're trying to solve and, and we can help do it. But don't just tell us exactly what you think you need. You know what I mean? That's another common problem, Brian. I'm sure that you run into that. Well, and 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 Carl, Carl, uh, my my little social media post thing, um, he jumped on and he made the the, the great point, and he was 100 percent right. He's like, you do know the manufacturers are on your side, right? You you do understand we want it to work, 
and you do understand this is all we do. Like he said it nicer because he's Carl Winkler and Carl's nicer than me. <laughs> but he, basically that's what he said. He was like, we're, we're right here. We have phone numbers. We have email addresses. This is all we do. And we can help you. And it was, it was, you know, it was kind of a really great reminder to me specifically and to, uh, hopefully to others that, you know, yeah, I, uh, you know, both Carl and Greg know far more about RF than I do. I'm just a, you know, boots on the ground guy throwing up antennas and trying to make stuff work and learning as I go. And yeah, rather than contacting Sennheiser and saying, you know, I, I, I need this or, or, or for that matter, contacting a rental house and just saying, I need, blah, I need these things. It's like, you know, go, yeah, go to the manufacturer and go, I've got a special challenge. And, and to be honest, it's the most fun part of our job. So that when you do call in yeah. and say, hey, I got this problem, what do I do? We're like, oh, this is cool. How are we going to fix this? Right. And so, mm -hmm. um, yeah. and we all, we all do it that way. And so if you don't call us, then we have to do more menial things. So please reach out. <laughs> yeah. That makes me feel good because I've called you before on show site and I always think I'm that, I'm just a pain. So it's, it's nice to hear. Yeah, we want to hear from you. And the best way is just on the support page of your of both of your websites. People reach us in all different ways. That's the modern world. They they reach us on Instagram. They reach us on Facebook uh, through the official page, through the, uh, the the groups, the user groups. They they call, they email. Uh, yeah, they use the support. Click contact us on the website. I mean, whatever is out there, they they use it, and which is great. Um, it does keep us up twenty four seven sometimes, <laughs> answering all of that, but. Um, no, we, we do enjoy the challenge, and there's lots of ways to reach us, so don't be shy. Well, I'm just thrilled that all three of you had such great perspectives and really some useful info for all our listeners. So I, I appreciate your time. I know you all are very busy, and thanks for supporting Sound Girls and coming on and imparting your wisdom. It's great, yeah. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. Yeah. The executive producers of the Sound Girls podcast are Becky Campbell and Susan Williams. The episode was produced by me, Rebecca Wilson, and edited by Fendel Fulton. Our theme music was written and recorded by Jess Fenton, and a big thank you to our sponsors, QSC, for supporting the Sound Girls podcast. The Sound Girls Living History Project is a collection of oral history interviews that highlights the careers and achievements of women and underrepresented groups in audio. One of the interviews is with Stephanie Brown, a sound editor and dialogue and ADR supervisor, known for her work on The Incredible Hulk, 8 Mile, A Wrinkle in Time, and many others. Working on The Matrix was probably my favorite because at the time, we didn't know what that movie was going to be, but we knew something was going to happen. And to see the phenomenon that movie became was amazing. And then to be involved in the sequels, it's still the highlight of my career is just being involved in that. Be sure and catch the full interview with Stephanie Brown, along with all the other Living History interviews, over on the Sound Girls website or YouTube channel. Hey, are you looking for more audio-related podcasts? Well, check out our friends at the Audio Podcast Alliance. To see all their podcasts, visit audiopodcast.org. 